Crested in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon to you all. Happy Wednesday and wishing you all a blessed feast of St. Nicholas as we kick off another two hours talking about the things that matter most. As you can tell, this is not Al. He's uh, been called away to work on some other business today, but we do have a lot of great things to talk about over the next couple of hours. However, before we get there, I wanted to uh, make sure that we don't forget to send out two uh, sets of congratulations. First, to Sports Faith International in the uh, greater Chicagoland area. They are this week celebrating 10 years with us at EWTN. So congrats to uh, Angela Tomlinson and everybody else at WSFI. And also congrats to one more member of the EWTN family, St. Jude Catholic Church in Mansfield, Texas, celebrating nine years with EWTN, and so congrats as well to uh, Joel Rodriguez and everybody else down at KYRE in Mansfield, Texas. From all of us at Ave Maria Radio and EWTN, congrats to both Angela at WSFI and Joel at KYRE. Over the next two hours, what will we be talking about? Well, quite a few things. Uh, We've got a commentary from Al to share with you. Uh, You probably remember the old song, It's My Life. Well, for Christians, it's not my life. Uh, the first commandment, it's one of the first things you learn in Sunday school, and our culture has largely abandoned it. Uh, we, but we were not created to exercise self-law or self-rule. We were created to live for God. And Al will share more thoughts on that in just a few minutes. And then uh, later on in this hour, we will explore one of these, again, great issues, atheism and the problem of suffering. For uh, Dr. Brent Robbins, raised Catholic, became an atheist, the problem of evil and suffering was a big reason why he stopped believing in God. And while he never found a simple answer to why a good God would allow suffering, he came to understand that there were more layers to the question than he'd initially realized. He'll share his story with us. Uh, Dr. Robbins is a professor of psychology at Point Park University in Pittsburgh, where he also directs the Master's in Community Psychology program, editor-in-chief of the Janus Journal, and a recipient of the American Psychological Association's Carmi Harari Early Career Award. That's all in this first hour. And in the second hour, we take a... uh, walk with Deal Hudson, looking at a year of Catholic wisdom. This is a great book he's put together with little daily uh, reflections that help you grow in your wisdom in the Lord. And we'll talk about that later on in this program. All of that coming up after this news break. Thank you, Brian, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, December 6th. It's the Feast of St. Nicholas. And today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance to seniors in need at visitingangels.com. Former Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy said he will resign from Congress at year-end. This comes after McCarthy was the first Speaker of the House to be ousted from power in the middle of their congressional term. He was ousted by a small minority of conservative Republicans. In an op-end in the Wall Street Journal, McCarthy said he's decided to leave the House to serve America in new ways. Israeli forces are operating in the heart of southern Gaza's main city as it's believed Hamas leaders are being housed in the area. The United Nations said Israel's ground invasion is creating an increasingly apocalyptic situation for Palestinians as food, water, and medicine are running very low. 
The Israeli-Hamas war is in its 61st day. Four Russian soldiers are being charged with war crimes against an American living in Ukraine during Russia's invasion of the country. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced the charges on Wednesday and said the charges include conspiracy to commit war crimes and torture. Garland said the American victim was abducted from their home by three of those charged and was stripped naked and beaten. A shooting spree in Texas yesterday left six people dead and two officers injured. Austin police say the suspect killed two people while stealing a car and then killed two more people during a home burglary. He's also being connected to two deaths at a home near San Antonio, and police believe those victims were killed before the rampage started in Austin. And TV pioneer Norman Lear is dead at the age of 101. Lear died at his home in Los Angeles of natural causes. He is best known for creating the 1970 sitcoms All in the Family and Maud. From the Ave Maria Radio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember the first time you heard about the first commandment? I am the Lord your God, you shall have not other gods before me. You know, I can remember when I first heard that, maybe not the single first time, but early on, there was a nun at catechism class on Saturday mornings telling us something like sinning against the first commandment was serious. And they explained, she explained how in the ancient world, people used to make idols and then bow down to them. And I believed her, but I didn't think it was very likely that I desired to bow down before figurines or statues. Uh, I don't know. At that time, I don't know if I knew about the Egyptian deity, Anubis, that's the one who's represented as a jackal or a man with the head of a jackal. And, you know, those don't seem that relevant to me when I'm a kid growing up. That's idolatry. I'm not in danger of it. Well, somewhere along the way, obviously, you get older and people point out that you can make an idol out of money or material possessions or pleasure. And that made more sense because I desire money, possessions, and pleasure a lot more than I desire a statue that looks like a mutation of a man with a falcon's head. (laughs) Somewhere along the way, someone further taught me that sin itself is an act of idolatry. Because in sinning, we're serving some other god. We are obeying some other commander. You know, the world, the flesh, the devil... And when we choose to disobey God, we are saying that something other than God has priority in our life. It's an act of idolatry. In fact, St. Paul at one point actually corresponds um, uh, coveting with idolatry. So whatever or whoever controls us really is our God. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We don't control ourselves then. We're being controlled by another, by another Lord of our life. We're controlled by the identities we form as we pursue our desires. Because as we, we are what we love. We are what we desire. One of the great tragedies of sin is that it forms us into beings that God didn't design. We become something unnatural, something God never intended when he created us. So when St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning of verse 9, writes, Do you not know that the unjust will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor boy prostitutes, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
This is what some of you used to be. In other words, that was their identity before. They were adulterers. They were idolaters. They were boy prostitutes. That's They had made that the, their identity. But now, St. Paul says, you have had yourselves washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. I think this is just amazing. We become what we desire. We become not who God created us to be, but we become, in a certain sense, our own creation. We can't understand what's going on in America if we don't recognize that America has come under the sway of a false god. America is now controlled by a twisted understanding of freedom. It's my right, and I'll do what I want. It's come, more elite circles call it personal or individual autonomy. It comes from two Greek words, autos, meaning self, and nomos, meaning law. Uh, We were definitely made to exercise freedom. That's what makes us remarkable as creatures. But it's freedom under God. It's freedom to do as we ought, not freedom to do as we wish. We were not created to exercise self-will, self-law, self-rule, apart from God our Creator. And as I said yesterday, America's emphasis on individual autonomy is an idolatrous distortion, even a replacement of the original American ideal of ordered liberty. And I watched America further and further down the road, um, more and more allowing everyone to do what is right in his own eyes, to use that phrase from the book of Judges. Uh, ancient Israel had their, they had a problem of individual autonomy. Uh, before there was the king, while people had forgotten the, the law of God, they had individual autonomy. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. It's my life. I'll do what I want. Most Americans still think that if you're exercising individual autonomy, that you're still not supposed to harm others. Okay, well, okay, that's fine as far as it goes, but those who champion autonomy tend not to be too worried about the impact of their actions on others. They're more interested in escaping negative consequences that might flow from their actions. Uh, Abortion, for instance, is an exercise in autonomy that actually does directly kill somebody. Abortion becomes simply the cost we pay to ensure that the autonomous self will not be encumbered by the consequences of its autonomous choices. Physician-assisted suicide is ultimately about autonomy. With a little bit of help, you've got to get the physician in there to help you commit suicide. But it will have impact on others. It's going to redefine the role of physician, and it will bring pressures on the disabled, the elderly dependent, uh, to off themselves, because they will feel that they are becoming a burden. Uh, same-sex so-called marriage is about exercising personal autonomy, but it has the consequence for others on redefining the institution of marriage. Marriage has always been a gendered institution, even in societies where they don't practice uh, monogamy. Marriage is still a gendered institution, but now we allow marriage to be defined uh, as though gender is no longer relevant. Uh, that's going to raise the question, of course, if gender is not significant, how long will number be significant? Why not threesomes? 
polyamory, polygamy, as long as we have consenting adults. So who gets hurt in all this? Children. See, people do get hurt in the exercise of individual autonomy. It's an act of idolatry, and it hurts others. It doesn't just hurt ourselves. And now we've got transgender advocates, as I said yesterday, who want to extend autonomy down to adolescence. Now, adolescents can't marry, can't drink, can't vote, but now they can permanently alter their bodies because it's their life and let them do what they want. It's been nine presidential elections that I've been on the air, and I've been watching Christians engage the culture around us. In almost every campaign year, candidates urge us to take back America. This is about as tired a phrase as you can find. It's on a par with tax-and-spend Democrats or hard-hearted Republicans who want to protect the rich. And, And yet, with each election, the command to take back America reappears. For all these calls, of course, to take back the nation over these nine presidential elections that I've sat through, we seem to think that America's problem that we have to correct is go back to a different idea of the budget or a different foreign policy or new regulatory reform. I'd argue that America's biggest problem is this act of idolatry that has allowed us to turn the emphasis on ordered liberty into a preoccupation with personal and individual autonomy. I'd go further and say that any attempt to take back America or make America great again that does not attack the idolatry of individual autonomy is doomed to failure. Reagan supporters, believing they were taking back America from the chaos of the 60s in Vietnam and the disgrace of Richard Nixon and the feeble presidency of Jimmy Carter, um, they used the phrase. Uh, it came to be called, in Reagan's second term, mourning in America. You know, they come back with it. Now, the phrase is usually used, of course, by put the party out of office. So in 1988, the Democrat uh, presidential candidate, Michael Dukakis, used it when he was running against sitting Vice President George H.W. Bush. Nobody addressed autonomy there. At least Reagan welcomed Catholic and Protestant activists into uh, his movement. Uh, we At that time, we talked about it as having a place at the table. Uh, the 1992 Clinton campaign, I don't recall them using the phrase to take America back, but it certainly was in the back of their mind because after the election, he declared his administration, listen to this, he declared it the new covenant. <laughs> Kennedy had his new frontier, Johnson had his great society, Reagan had his morning in America, and Bill Clinton wanted the new covenant. Thankfully, it was dropped almost as soon as he mentioned it. When Clinton ran again in 96 and Republicans were the party out of office, I was in San Diego at the Republican National Convention. And I can tell you that Dole Kemp supporters were talking about, quote, taking back America from the Clintonistas, just like Nicaragua had been taken back from the Sandinistas. And of course, after the Clinton years, the supporters of George W. Bush wanted to take America back to the direction that his father and Ronald Reagan had taken America. Obama didn't talk about taking America back. Because he didn't have to. The financial collapse of 2008 was chalked up to Republican mismanagement. But a year or two into Obama's administration, the Tea Party rose up. What what are they saying? We're going to take America back again. We're going to make America great again, which, of course, has been picked up by Donald Trump. And, you know, it's simply a variation of Take Back America. This has been part of America's DNA from the beginning. 
uh, I have a digital library system where I can access about 5,000 sermons, uh, speeches, medical records, criminal records from the late Puritan period right up through the colonial and founding periods. And it's amazing what stands out as you look over the sermons especially. You have what scholars call the American Jeremiah. And this is uh, a political sermon that might be called the State of the Covenant Address. These would come up on Thanksgiving days, days of fasting, days of mortification. In fact, there's an entire book written in 1978 called The American Jeremiah. Warnings about America's direction are part of our DNA. They go back to the Puritans. Uh, They couldn't talk about taking America back again, but they could talk about renewing the covenant again. We're in a place in our national life together where people have forgotten God, and these things have come upon us because we have. Christ came that we might have fullness of life. And the deeper we enter into that new life, the more believable become our words. We must die to this notion of, it's my life and I'll do what I want. That doesn't lead to fullness of life. We know the gospel is that Christ has come to bring us fullness of life, that we might live that new life. And until we can actually see America dropping personal autonomy and turning towards autonomy exercised rightly under God, America is going to continue with its problems regardless of our tax code, regardless of our regulatory condition, regardless of our foreign policy. If we want to bless our nation, we have to build the church. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. St. John Bosco once had a heavenly vision telling him to reject harsh approaches to discipline and instead raise the children in his care with reason, religion, and loving kindness. Today, we call his method discipleship discipline. It's a means of child rearing that doesn't just focus on stopping bad behavior, but rather helps parents raise faithful kids who love God and lead virtuous Christian lives. Discipleship discipline is great for kids, but it also helps parents experience and share God's love more effectively with their families. That's why discipleship discipline is such an important part of the liturgy of domestic church life, a way of experiencing the faith as the source of the warmth in your home. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Father Benedict Groeschel. I often go back to my childhood. In church, we love to be reverent, to Christ present in the Eucharist to Christ on the cross. But I was also impressed by the reverence of my friends in the Salvation Army. They had a little band. And I used to walk past the band on Sunday morning on my way to church. And I was just a child. But I said, you know, they're trying to pray to God. They're showing reverence to God. All this was reverence. Now what do I see? I hear one irreverence after another. And week after week, month after month, the media churns out things that make fun of religion in general and make fun of Christianity in particular, and particularly make fun of the Catholic Church. No class. Absolutely no class. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic.
This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic Law School in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Dr. Brent Robbins, is a professor of psychology at Point Park University in Pittsburgh, where he also directs the Master's in Community Psychology program. He's also editor-in-chief of Janus Head, a journal of interdisciplinary studies in literature, continental philosophy, and phenomenological psychology, and a recipient of the American Psychological Association's Carmi Harari Early Career Award. Um, Dr. Robbins was raised Catholic, uh, became an atheist. Uh, The problems of evil, suffering, big reasons why he stopped believing in God. And while he never found a simple answer to why a good God would allow suffering, he did come to understand that there were more layers to that question than he initially realized. And he's going to share the story with us. Brent, good to have you with me. Thanks. Hi, Al. Great to, great to uh, be on the show with you. Thank you for inviting me. Let's uh, go back to when he, the home you were raised in. Uh, what kind? I know you're, you had some Catholicism there. How intense was it? Well, I, my, I, my parents were not very involved in the church. I mean, I did go to Catholic school, but, uh, you know, we went to Mass, you know, maybe on the holidays. And, uh, you know, so, sometimes we talked about religious and spiritual issues around the home, but I would say it was a very, you know, sort of detached relationship to the church, not not a lot of involvement uh, other than through school. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when my parents got divorced, my father left my mother for another woman, and he wasn't really practicing at all after that. My mother ended up uh, marrying a Presbyterian and going to his church, and I wasn't involved in 
any of that. No. Uh, and so I was sort of a bit alienated yeah. in term, from, from any kind of practice with the church at that point. How old were you when and they divorced? And then my dad's side of the family, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, how old were you when they divorced? I was uh, 12 years old. Okay, yeah. And um, so they both went off in different directions, uh, spiritually speaking. Uh, you were 12. Is there anybody in your extended family who stands out to you as a, a mediator of, uh, you know, spiritual a spiritual life? Mm. Uh, yeah, there are several people. I know my grandparents on my mother's side, um, Anne and Mario, Julian, uh, they were, you know, daily communicants, you know, so I knew, you know, and we, when we would go out there, when I would stay with my grandparents, you know, we would go to Mass every day. My grandmother would go to New Mass. Mm. Uh, and uh, it was just, you know, whenever you go to their place, you know, it was very visible, their Catholic identity. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, Sacred Heart <laughs> uh, everywhere, and uh, <laughs> yeah, lots of uh, outward signs of their Catholicism. So that was, I really got a sense that that was an important part of uh, their identity and what they were practicing, and, and they, that was definitely an inspiration for me because I uh, was very close to my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, at 12, after the divorce, are you conscious of becoming alienated from God? Would those words have even meant anything to you? Well, you know, I think it was a little bit, it was almost, it was a bit of a gradual process for me. It wasn't like an all of a sudden event where okay. I felt like I had lost faith. I think that part of it started off pretty early on because my father's side of the family were Catholic. They were raised Catholic, but a lot of them left the church to become, mm-hmm. you know, non-denominational evangelical okay. Christians. And uh, and so they were joining a community that was pretty critical of the Catholic Church. Yeah. And so whenever I was around that side of the family, they would sort of chip away at a lot of my beliefs about the Catholic Church. And I think that sort of had an impact on me. It didn't. It really didn't. Made for a period of time, I got a little bit interested in uh, the evangelical uh, side of things, but okay. it really ultimately wasn't very appealing to me. But it had the effect of damaging, you know, my trust and faith in the Church, yeah. because I didn't have very good answers to the criticisms that they were raising. Sure. And that kind of planted some seeds of doubt in me, and then when I went on to college, I think that was really the moment when I started to have some problems. I mean, I, I took a course in uh, world religions where the, where the professor was, you know, uh, an avowed atheist, and really the whole class was like an apologetics for atheism. And it was pretty compelling. I mean, it's the problem. Sure. <laughs> you know, he was a smart guy, and he was a pretty good apologist for atheism. And so that, I think, had an impact on me. But it was all throughout, you know, higher ed. There was just this sort of implicit critique of uh, any kind of, kind of uh, faith. It's kind of and, funny, and, and isn't particularly it? the Catholic Church was often a target. Yeah, yeah. In general. But yeah. I, I just, an atheist teaching a world religions class, I mean, I, <laughs> would you, would yeah, you hire somebody who didn't believe, would you hire somebody who didn't believe in physics? I learned physics? nothing about world religion in that class. It was, it, was, it did not, the, what he was teaching in the class was not what the course description was, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, so, was, when, were you, were you consciously deciding that 
uh, as a rational person that God didn't exist, or was it? Did you just kind of ease into you know kind of ease into it? Kind of a practical lifestyle issue. Yeah, I think it was a little bit of both. I think, but there there was definitely a point where I I came to a position that I felt I couldn't really address some of the criticisms of theism, and that, to be intellectually honest, I had to admit that atheism seemed to be the most rational mm-hmm. choice. Did you like that I would that say decision? that I didn't like that. I didn't like it, though. Yeah, that's, that, that was my next question, yeah. So you were, yeah. you were a, re- a reluctant atheist. A reluctant atheist, yes. Yeah. I was re- if somebody came along with some good answers, I think I was ready for it, but I really wasn't, I didn't have that. I didn't have access to somebody who had good answers to the questions right. uh, that were being posed uh, to me by, you know, professors in higher ed or, or or by the culture at large. You know, there's a lot of sort of uh, messages uh, just within, that I was encountering, whether in mass media, through, you know, satirical uh not necessarily formal critiques, but just the satire uh, yeah. that you see all over the sure. mass media, sort of poking fun, poking holes in faith. Yeah. Um, that that starts to wear on you after a while. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And and uh, does there come a time where you become a doctrinaire atheist, something that you want to share with others and, you know, kind of inflict it on people? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think I, I think maybe by the time I got into graduate school, okay. I had more of a. I became more of a professed atheist in the sense that in my conversations with other people, when the issue of religion came up, came up, I identified myself as atheist and was able to defend that. I wouldn't say I was sort of an atheistic evangelist. I wasn't. I, I never was like a Richard Dawkins type yeah. or new atheist okay. that was going out. You know attacking people's faith. I always kept a, I always had a respect for other people's religions and oh, faith, okay. and a kind of humility that I really was, uh, you know, still learning, and maybe there was something I I still had to learn that I didn't know. So I didn't have a kind of, like, sometimes you see in the New Atheism a kind of arrogance. Oh, yeah. Kind yeah. Of, you know the answers, and you know there's not a God. So, I mean, depending on how you define my, some people might say that sounds more like I was agnostic. But I would say, in terms, of, if people would ask me where, what position would you come down on, I would have come down more on the side of atheism. Yeah. So I think I, and, and these days, atheists tend to define themselves as, you know, if you don't have evidence for God, then therefore you're, an, you know, you're professing an atheism. And I think it was that form of atheism. Like I said, I didn't have an intellectual argument that I felt was compelling enough for theism, and so I felt, therefore, I had to be an atheist. Now, you were in graduate school in psychology, and there are many different emphases uh, in psychology. When I, was in, when I was in undergraduate, there was, you know, humanistic psychology and behaviorism and then uh, Freudianism. Was there a particular mm-hmm. trend or movement that you were a part of? Yeah, I mean, I went to Duquesne University, and... Mm-hmm. Duquesne University is one of the few graduate programs in the United States that has more of a humanistic existential orientation. Okay. Sure. And sure. so I, I was definitely steeped in that tradition. 
And uh, and there's also really kind of an infusion of uh, psychoanalytic theory with that. Okay. So I got a, all of that. But I would say it was mostly, the, the, the big emphasis was more of an existential and phenomenological form of humanistic psychology. Okay. How, how did you, or, or did you, did you think that uh, religious faith helped in human flourishing, or was it inevitably uh, neuro, you know, created neuroses? Yeah. Um, I think my answer at that time would have been a little bit of both. Okay, sure. <laughs> that uh, I sort of would have understood it more from maybe an evolutionary standpoint that uh, that evolution sort of had evolved uh, our capacity to. I would have come out of a more of an uh, Ernest Becker kind of approach. Okay, which would Ernest Becker was an anthropologist had a big influence on social psychology. Yeah, denial of death, of important denial of death. Yeah. yeah. So the idea that um, you know we evolved this giant. Yes, rebroke frontal cortex that allowed us to look far into the future, so far into the future that we could recognize the inevitability of our own demise, mm-hmm. the demise of other people, and that if we didn't erect some kind of symbolic system in order to contend with that, then that then we wouldn't be able to cope. Mm-hmm. So I saw not necessarily religion. I would understand religion in that in that context wouldn't necessarily be. A formal sort of organized religious system, but it might, but any system of meaning that sort of organizes your life and gives a direction and meaning and yeah. purpose and staves off so I would the inevitable that was, death is necessary. Yeah, right. I mean, it, right. In order to the heroic, in order to manage anxieties around immortality. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that you you've got to find some sort of heroic project or something to uh, keep you right. working. Uh, uh, so. When when did uh, you begin to take an interest or begin pursuing uh, spiritual things in any sort of formal way? I know your wife played an important role in this. Yes. Yeah, I think my wife played an important role in, in bringing me back to the Mass, because it's interesting. She has a really interesting story in and of herself, because... She was herself raised Presbyterian, uh, and you know she. I'll tell you went what, Brent, hold experience it. where she converted to Catholicism. Yeah, but hold it there. The music's coming up. We'll take a break. We'll come back and continue the conversation. My guest is Dr. Brent Robbins, taking a look at his move from atheism into full communion with the Catholic Church. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 
844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Dr. Ray Garendi. To vent or not, if I get it off my chest, then I feel better. I've got to vent. Is this so? It's old theory, somewhat like a catharsis. You've got to purge yourself of these emotions and Lord help anyone who's standing in the way. It's old theory. It's inaccurate. Venting is generally not good for the hearers and it's not good for the venter. Venting may be good for dryers. It's not good for people. When we vent, we become more likely to vent. And when we are more likely to vent, we are more likely to hurt and say things we shouldn't say. Careful on the venting. Better to think about what you have to say before you vent. We were made for spiritual greatness. The divine image is in every person, however dimly seen in some. God gave man a spiritual and immortal soul. From the first moment in the womb, he or she is destined for eternal life with God. Man, by his reasoning, is capable of understanding the order the Creator has established. By our will, we are capable of aligning ourselves with our true good, which is where we find our perfection. Reason provides recognition of God's voice directing us toward good and avoiding evil. The law of God is made known by our conscience and is fulfilled by the love of God and love of neighbor. Because our first parents sinned, we suffer the wound of original sin. Thus, while we still desire good, we are inclined toward evil and subject to error. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta, and with me is Dr. Brent Robbins, talking over his uh, spiritual journey uh, from uh, atheism to Catholicism, and we, we, before the break, we came to the place where uh, he began telling us about his his wife. When when you met your wife or the woman who was to be your wife, was she uh, religiously uh, on fire? I wouldn't say she was religiously on fire. I, she was attending church. She was going to a Presbyterian church 
in uh, in the St. Louis where we met since before I moved to Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. We both moved to Pittsburgh to get where I went to graduate school. We met in St. Louis. So, I, in fact, I went to that church with her a few times when we were dating. But it was, I think, she didn't, you know, I think she was sort of an irregular attendee. And, uh, but she had been, she was a social worker. She had a bachelor's degree in social work, and she was doing charitable work with, uh, in the downtown St. Louis area, in a really very impoverished part of town. Hmm. And she was, finding herself collaborating a lot with Catholic charities, and she got to know a lot of very uh, faithful, devout Catholics. And she was just very impressed with those people. They had a big impression on her. Hmm. And I think for that, and some perhaps for some other reasons, she just felt a real attraction to the Church. Yeah. And at that time, she didn't really do anything about it. But I remember her mentioning things about it, and that kind of surprised me a little bit. And then when we moved to Pittsburgh... Uh, I think very soon after we moved back to Pittsburgh, I had a we had a relative who passed away, and we went to the funeral. And in, she tells a story about how that mass was pretty important for her. So he was Catholic. The person who presided over the mass was uh, over the funeral was uh, would become the bishop of Pittsburgh, Bishop Zubik. Yeah. Uh, at that time, he was a priest and yet hadn't yet been uh, become bishop. And he just told a really simple use a very simple analogy about sort of putting pebbles in a jar. You might have heard the the story before, but you know, if you put the if you put the small pebbles in first it fills everything up. But if you put the really important the, the big rocks in first, then you can fit everything else in between. And it was a really it was an analogy that really spoke to her. Like this was the time for her to act on this hmm. desire that she was feeling to join the church. So soon after that she joined R C I A. And I remember when she told me about that I was pretty surprised. I, I didn't see that coming. And she began to go to classes and go to Mass. And then after a period of time, she invited me to Easter Vigil Mass, where she was baptized and uh, received confirmation. Wow. And that was really something. She was very moved, you know, to tears during that service, and that impressed me, that, that this was very meaningful to her. And, uh, I, I, you know, I love my wife, and so there was something, you know, moved in me when I saw that in her. And then she started inviting me to go to Mass with her after that. And I would go, but, like, very reluctantly, sort of in a disgruntled way. You mm-hmm. know, had to drag myself there kind of thing. And when we when we would go to Mass, I would, uh, you know, like, I wouldn't say the Creed. I wouldn't receive the Eucharist because right. I didn't feel that, you know, even though I had been a cradle Catholic, that I really couldn't you know, assent to right. uh, profess the faith, because I didn't have the faith. Sure. Um, but then, you know, attending the Mass started to have, it just, it was the intellectual curiosity, I think, is where it began, where I would observe things that were happening in the Mass, and just get curious about it, like, I wonder what that's about, what's the symbolism behind that. Yeah. So sometimes I would do a little research, and I remember I was at the bookstore, just for one example, but it was a very important one, was uh, Scott? I got Scott Hahn's The Lamb's Supper. Yeah, sure. And uh, that book was it. Just so it was very accessible. You didn't have to have a lot of background right. in theology or scripture even to really understand it. He's such a good communicator. Yeah. And I really it helped me understand the mass in a way that I had never appreciated before. And so I, I really was impressed by that. In, intellectually stimulated, but 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 I think it just something that seemed like a formal ritual that was kind of empty and didn't have any meaning, I started to 
I started to understand the meaning of it. Yes, uh, you got the bigger story. Way. Yeah. Yeah. I got the bigger story and how it fit into scripture. And I you know, because I went to Catholic school I had the background in scripture, so I understood what I understood the scriptural references and mm-hmm. I never realized how the Eucharistic feast tied into, you know, Exodus and Yeah and, and uh, Genesis <laughs> and the way he you know, brings it out. It's and, and it unlocks you know, the old testament unlocks the new and vice versa. Right. And I, I got all that. I don't even remember, you know, hearing the, them teach us that, you know, the Old Testament unlocks the New Testament, vice versa. Uh-huh. But Scott really made me see how that was the case, and I was I, that was exciting. It was into, I guess at that point it was more intellectually stimulating. It was, mm-hmm. cur- you know, like a curiosity, you know. Uh, but I, was, I wouldn't have uh, said that I had shifted in terms of my faith at that point. The what? big thing happened, I got my first tenure-track job in... Buffalo, New York, and we moved there, and I had my first son, my first son was born, and that was quite a momentous occasion, because there's something very profound about a person suddenly appearing out of nothing. That's that's the ex nihilo uh, <laughs> becomes very real when you become a parent, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and it changes your life. I think I started to understand what it meant to be a father, and I think being in the role of a father helped me to appreciate God's love for me. You know, this idea mm-hmm. that God could love me. Because so, I, I just had this incredible love for my son, you yeah. know. Yeah. And I think maybe that was an opening for me into being aware of the way that God could love me and, and, and the way I love my son. So I think all that was kind of priming me, but it wasn't getting me there quite yet. And there would be things that, like, we we went to this church and... You know, we brought our son with us, and it wasn't a very child-friendly service. And like, we would sit down somewhere, and people would move away from us, and that kind of felt very alienating. <laughs> and I was like, "These Catholics, see, they're all, uh, you know." And I would just, uh, you know, gripe, you know. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it all. So I was looking for things to like reinforce my doubt. I think mm-hmm. at that point, but there was a moment when we went to and we found a service that was very child-friendly. We had to drive like an extra fifteen minutes to go to this place that a friend of my wife recommended. And that was a very family-friendly service. What I most remember is the the usher was just so kind to my son. He would say hi to him. He would give him, like, a little piece of candy or, like, a, like a nickel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or, yeah. uh, he just paid attention to him and just communicated hospitality to him and to us. And it was a very family-friendly service. There were lots of other children. When you would leave the Mass, the pastor would hand out... Uh, Tootsie Roll. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was like, it's it's a simple gesture, but sure. it was communicating, you're welcome here. You and your family are welcome here. And that meant a lot to me. And then uh, we had maybe been going to that Mass a few months, and that usher handed me a flyer and said, hey, we're having a, we're having a retreat. You might like to come. You know, here's the flyer in case you're interested. Hmm. And because I was so impressed with that usher... I wanted to go, mainly because I wanted to meet him. I was impressed with him. I was attracted to him as a friend. Yep. And so I was like, yeah, I'd like to get to know him and some of the other people. And because I was, we, you know, we didn't really know anybody at the parish at that time. Mm-hmm. So I think I was kind of looking for community. Sure. Uh, and, and to be, connect with some of these people who seem to be virtuous people, good people. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, anything people. significant happen on that retreat? Yeah, very, that was the big, that was the big, <laughs> what happened? Tell me, tell me. <laughs> so I went to that uh, retreat, and it was, it was, you know, we would have dinner, and we would have a guest speaker, and then we'd watch a video and have a discussion. That was kind of the format. We did that every week for like a few months, and then 
at the end, we had a full day retreat. I remember it was a Saturday. We went in, I think it was like nine in the morning, and then we were there into the evening. But the, the, the part that was really profound for me was a period, I think it was a three-hour block where there was no activities planned, and we were told to just go and pray in silence for three hours. <laughs> and that pretty much terrified me. The idea of sitting alone in silence uh, sounded like, like oppressively boring, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> my, what my fear was. So th- I, I had a few prayers, you know, that they gave us in handouts that I took with me, and I read those in, like, probably, like, five minutes. And then I'm like, okay, now what? So I was like, okay, I guess I'll listen. Maybe if, if there's a God, here, here's your chance, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was, and I really, it's hard to underestimate the the sense in which I felt God's presence and God speaking to me mm-hmm. in in ways that are very clear, give me very clear and distinct messages. That uh, one of them was, I'm going to, you're going to go back to Pittsburgh. It wasn't even like. You should go back to Pittsburgh. It's like, guess what? <laughs> you're going back to Pittsburgh, it's whether inevitable. you like it or not, yeah. which obviously happened. And there's a whole story behind that, the way the earth moved in order for that to happen. Because wow. I, I laugh. I laugh out loud by myself when I when I heard that. <laughs> and uh, Because I thought, there's no way. Like, tenure-track jobs just don't open up, you know? Somewhere right. that, that's in your specialty in academia. It doesn't work like that, you know? And uh, lo and behold, there's like three jobs that open up in the area. I got offers at all of them. So there, that was very profound. The other, you know, and I got some very, just go back and continue your research on joy was one of the things that I had done my dissertation on joy. I got another very clear message to volunteer for hospice. So it was very clear directive for my life. And uh, I was just incredibly moved by that experience and, uh, Afterwards, we had the opportunity to go to confession. And I remember when they brought that up earlier in the day, I was like, no way, I'm not going to be the one <laughs> I'm not going to confession. Ain't going to be me. Well, by the end of that three-hour prayer session, I was headed right to the confessional and sat down and did first confession I'd had probably since, you know, I was sort of compelled to go at some point in Catholic school. Yeah. Uh, and it was, so I was like, I really voluntarily went I was just in, almost inconsolably tearful about how I felt uh, over having denied God. Mm-hmm. And the priest was just so wonderful. He really made, <laughs> comforted me and, uh, you know, helped me to, you know, support me while I was uh, really pretty emotionally shaken, you know, during that experience. Sure. It, was, it was a very positive experience. Uh, going to confession. It was like walking out. I felt like I had lost like 150 pounds. Isn't like the that weight, something? Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. came I off know. of me. You know, I was like walking on air. <laughs> and uh, and then after that, I was just became extremely, I was just filled with the Holy Spirit. And I just wanted to, wanted to pray. Uh, I, I had, I started putting prayers all over my office, <laughs> yeah. you know, on the walls. And I was praying all day and I'm starting to say the rosary, and I was telling my wife we should start to say prayers before meals, and it kind of it scared her a bit, because she hadn't seen me like that, you know? <laughs> Even though she was, she was at that point, you know, she had passed to the point where she had gone through that conversion where she was really, you know how it is, that that, yes. that first period of time, you're going high, you know? Yeah, sure. And uh, I was just, you know, 24-7, you know? Yeah. And uh, so... You know, and then there was a point where we just sort of we came together, and you know, we're sort of in the same rhythm, you know, yeah. with each other in the faith. We've and got about that's a, been an incredible 
incredibly important for our marriage. Yeah, I'm sure. We've got about a minute and a half left, if that. And uh, so did you, was it easy for you at that point then to come into full communion, just go back to, you went to confession, and were right. back in? Yeah, so then it was, well, I had, I mean, at that point, I, how could I doubt? I had a direct right. contact with God. Amen. I mean, I didn't doubt. I knew uh, that was God, yep. because I, 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 the things I was being told were not things I would have thought of myself. I literally laughed out loud. Yep. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like Sarah, you know, <laughs> when yes. uh, the angels tell Abraham, you know, you're, you're going to have a son, and she laughs. That's kind of how my response was. Yes, yes. Like, no, really? great. I'm going to Pittsburgh? <laughs> I, so I, I, I would have never come up with those things on my own. So it was, I really had a sense that this was God speaking to me. And then at that point, I, was, I did a lot of research. I read... You know, I've read uh, Rene Girard and Robert Spitzer and all, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, Kinga's ontological yeah. argument. You know, I had all of, and I began to see that there was the full intellectual tradition that well, allowed me to have, this, you we'll, know, an intellectual congruence. We'll, we'll talk again, Brent. That's a fantastic story. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. <laughs> Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health-sharing option. Curo's Christ-centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Advent is here, and it's a new church year. What is your favorite liturgical season? That's our question in this week's Poll of the Week. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to the Poll of the Week to let us know. Father Benedict Rochelle. I don't think people should have negative fears of God, but I think you should get a lump in your throat. You should feel excited. Suppose I was going to take you and introduce you to the Pope or to the President of some country or something. You might get a little lump in your throat. Forget it. Every day, you, I, live and move and have our being in the presence of God. These are the class of feelings we should have, and we should have them to an intense degree if we really had the sight of Almighty God. These feelings are the feelings which we shall have if we realize His presence, and in proportion as we believe that He is present, we shall have them, and not to have them is not to realize, not to believe, that God is present to us. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Thank you for being with us uh, over that first hour. If you go to AveMariaRadio.net, you can follow up on those conversations. We'll have uh, Al's uh, commentary there for you about how it's not my life. And also have um, links to uh, Dr. Brent Robbins' work. This testimony, we, we originally came across it. He was speaking with our uh, good friend Marcus Grodi on the Coming Home Network. And uh, you can find that interview there as well in the Cresta Guest Archive. So you can get to know uh, Dr. Robbins a little bit better. In the next hour... In the words of G.K. Chesterton, the Catholic Church is the one continual institution that has been 
thinking about thinking for 2,000 years, saving us from ignorance that makes us children of our own time. And inspired by this, uh, Deal Hudson has developed a step-by-step guide for approaching each day of the year with Catholic wisdom. You know him well. He's been on this program many times over the years, president of the Morley Institute and uh, former editor of Crisis Magazine, directed Catholic outreach for four presidential elections. And you, of course, probably know Deal best if you listen to Ave Maria Radio from his uh, church and culture program that airs on the weekends. He's also the author of another great book, How to Keep from Losing Your Mind, Educating Yourself Classically to Resist Cultural Indoctrination. Deal joins us in the next hour. Lots more to talk about here on Cresta in the Afternoon, and we'll be back with more after this break. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Once again, good afternoon to you all, and welcome to this second hour of this Wednesday edition of Cresta in the Afternoon. Al's uh, dealing with some business right now, but we do have another great interview to share with you. And uh, once again, I want to wish everybody a blessed Feast of St. Nicholas. And also, before we forget, congratulations both to uh, Sports Faith International in the greater Chicagoland area, a member of the WTN family celebrating 10 years with us. Congrats to Angela and everybody at WSFI. Also, congrats to St. Jude Catholic Church in Mansfield, Texas, celebrating nine years with EWTN. So a special shout out to Joel and everybody else down at KYRE in Mansfield, Texas. In this hour, we'll be talking about wisdom. Of course, we all know the story of uh, Solomon when he became king, asking the Lord to grant him wisdom. And of course, the Lord did. As I said in the last hour, uh, it was Chesterton who once pointed out that the Catholic Church is the one institution that has been thinking about thinking for 2,000 years, which saves us from making a lot of silly decisions. And Deal Hudson has put together a wonderful book. We've talked about it with him uh, in the past called 365 Days of Catholic Wisdom, A Treasury of Truth, Beauty, and Goodness. And in this, he pulls from everybody from Erasmus to the saints to different philosophers and theologians over the years. And has little like one to two page reflections where you can grow in wisdom reading this. And so for today, and again, it's not by date, it's by day of the year. So we're on day 340 now. And we'll read from uh, St. Francis de Sales, who speaks of spe- uh, speaking ill of others unjustly. Certainly something that we have a problem with in this social media culture. And St. Francis writes, speaking ill of others unjustly is a pest of society. Whoever could purge the world of it would cleanse from it a great part of its sinfulness. Whoever unjustly takes away his neighbor's good name is guilty of sin and is obliged to make reparation according to the nature of what he has said unjustly. For no one can enter heaven loaded with stolen goods, and of all worldly possessions, the most precious is a good name. Slander is a kind of murder. We all have three lives, a spiritual life, which depends upon the grace of God, a bodily life, which is in the soul, and a civil life, which consists of a good reputation. Sin deprises of the first, death of the second, and slander of the third. 
But if the slanderer commits a triple murder with his idle tongue, he destroys both his own soul and the soul of the one uh, who listens to him through a kind of spiritual homicide. In addition, he deprives the one he has slandered of civil life. As St. Bernard says, the devil has possession both of the slanderer and those who listen to him, of the tongue of the one and of the ear of the other. I urge you then never to speak evil of anyone, either directly or indirectly. Beware of ever unjustly impu imputing crimes and sins to your neighbor, which is slander, of needlessly disclosing his true faults, which is detraction, of exaggerating the, those that are overt, or of attributing wrong motives to good actions, of denying the good that you know to dwell in someone, and of maliciously concealing that good or minimizing it in, in conversation. In all these ways, you are grievously offending God. But the worst is false accusations or denying the truth in a way that injures your neighbor. Again, that St. Francis de Sales, just one of the little tidbits of wisdom we'll be talking about in this hour with Deal Hudson, author of 365 Days of Catholic Wisdom, after this news break. Thank you, Brian, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, December 6th. It's the Feast of St. Nicholas. And today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance to seniors in need at visitingangels.com. Former Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy said he will resign from Congress at year-end. This comes after McCarthy was the first Speaker of the House to be ousted from power in the middle of their congressional term. He was ousted by a small minority of conservative Republicans. In an op-end in the Wall Street Journal, McCarthy said he's decided to leave the House to serve America in new ways. Israeli forces are operating in the heart of southern Gaza's main city as its believed Hamas leaders are being housed in the area. The United Nations said Israel's ground invasion is creating an increasingly apocalyptic situation for Palestinians as food, water, and medicine are running very low. The Israeli-Hamas war is in its 61st day. Four Russian soldiers are being charged with war crimes against an American living in Ukraine during Russia's invasion of the country. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced the charges on Wednesday and said the charges include conspiracy to commit war crimes and torture. Garland said the American victim was abducted from their home by three of those charged and was stripped naked and beaten. A shooting spree in Texas yesterday left six people dead and two officers injured. Austin police say the suspect killed two people while stealing a car and then killed two more people during a home burglary. He's also being connected to two deaths at a home near San Antonio, and police believe those victims were killed before the rampage started in Austin. And TV pioneer Norman Lear is dead at the age of 101. Lear died at his home in Los Angeles of natural causes. He is best known for creating the 1970s sitcoms All in the Family and Maude. From the AveMariaRadio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Deal Hudson uh, has taught philosophy at three uh, respected uh, major universities. He has uh, served as publisher and editor of the magazine Crisis. And he has authored a number of books. He has published How to Keep from Losing Your Mind, Educating Yourself Classically to Resist Cultural Indoctrination, and also 365 Days of Catholic Wisdom, A Treasury of Truth, Beauty, and Goodness. And uh, we are honored to have him as host of Church and Culture, 
which is aired uh, on Ave Maria Radio, and he's also, at the present time, publisher of the Christian Review, and he blogs for the Catholic Herald. You can follow him on Twitter, at Deal W. Hudson. Deal, good to have you back here. Thanks. Hey, Al, I really appreciate uh, how uh, familiar you've become with my 365 days of Catholic wisdom. It's it's wonderful. I mean, I think this is this is going to be, and it ought to be, um, something which is a, a common uh, Christmas gift this year. I, I do think that you can't go wrong with this. If you've got friends who are all interested uh, in Catholic thought, whether it's uh, literature, the arts, uh, philosophy, uh, solid uh, devotional insight and wisdom, this is this is a outstanding gift so i hope it does well well i uh you're helping (laughs) very very much and uh you know this this was a product of joy in a way it was um, a product of all the years of reading that brought me into the church in 1985 yeah you read your way into the church i did and i said in a speech last night uh Reading books was my prayer <laughs> that good. led me into the church uh, because it can sound like it was just intellectual, but it wasn't at all. Obviously, he, big emotions, passions, feelings were involved. And, you know, one of the criterion for choosing these selections was its visceral impact. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want this to be something that someone could go, oh, that's nice, and flip the page. Right. You know, I want it to be something that kind of stops you in your tracks and makes you think. Yeah. Um, and, by the way, I should mention, too, that uh, we haven't talked about this in a while, but Deal also has an outstanding record of his conversion. Uh, it's called An American Conversion. And uh, we've, it's been a while since we've talked about that. Someday we'll have to come back and have you on. Yeah, I mean, a good friend of mine... Still thinks that's my best book. Yeah. Okay. Well, I loved it. Yeah. You know, and uh, when Dana Joya hosted the the book the signing party in Washington, uh, I, I guess I'm embarrassed to say, but he called it a masterpiece. Yeah. And coming from Dana, that <laughs> meant something. <laughs> that's all. He is. He himself is an outstanding poet and writer. Uh, one yeah. of the best. I mean, you've got St. Athanasius in here, uh, uh, and you've got René Girard. <laughs> so, you know, you've got very strange bedfellows uh, hanging but, around. You know, it turns out, you know, René Girard has been one of the three or four most important theological voices over the last 30 years. Yeah, yeah. Among Charles sure. Taylor is another one. Right. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I just, one of my missions in this book was to introduce people that may not know about them to some of these uh, contemporaries who have had such uh, a huge impact yeah. on, on, on the church, on faith, you know, on, on Christian belief in general. You know, do you have, uh, you have the book in front of you there? I do. Okay, why don't you go ahead and read. Read the René Girard uh, passage on uh, page 99. Uh, it's from give me, give me the day number. Yeah, day number 59. Okay, I'll do it. Yeah, day 59. Here we go. Okay, go ahead. All right. This is from a book entitled, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. 
The idea of Satan duped by the cross is therefore not magical at all and in no way offends the dignity of God. The trick that traps Satan does not include the least bit of either violence or dishonesty on God's part. It is not really a ruse or trick. It is rather the inability of the prince of this world to understand divine love. Mm. If Satan does not see God, it is because he is violent contagion itself. The devil is extremely clever concerning everything having to do with rivalistic conflicts, with scandals and their outcome in persecution. But he is blind to all reality other than that. Satan turns a bad contagion into something I hope not to do myself, a totalitarian and infallible theory that makes the theoretician deaf and blind to the love of God for humankind and to the love that human beings share with God, however imperfectly. <laughs> that is that is marvelous. Uh, the idea of the devil so extremely clever. Uh, in, but blind. Yes, blind. Uh, engage in rivalistic conflicts and scandal. Uh, he certainly is afoot uh, in America today. Um, let's... Uh, what... What were some of the, I guess I'm kind of wondering how you began the book. Did you have a few pieces that immediately jumped out at you? Yes, absolutely. Okay. All right. In fact, I think having those pieces is what kind of inspired the book in general. Okay. Because I had pieces that you know, changed, literally changed my life, changed my beliefs, uh, uh caused me to be more honest with myself about my own fallibility, taught me about God, taught me about human nature, uh, corrected my paths. Uh, the, these are very personal selections, many of these. Mm. And, you know, I have a, a piece by Hans Urs von Balthasar, which, com you know, completely, you know, it was, it was the piece I read in uh, 1979, after which I said, uh, I know I'll become Catholic. You know, this was five years before I actually became a Catholic. <laughs> yeah, shall I read that? Yeah, to you? if you've got it right there, please do. I will. Here it is. This, is, this was given to me to read while it was still in manuscript being translated by Rasmus Leva for Ignatius Press. Mm -hmm. And it's from the book, The Heart of the World, by Hans Urs von Balthasar. <clears throat> For Christ's weakness would already be the victory of his love for the Father, reconciliation in the eyes of the Father, and as a deed of his supreme strength. This weakness would be so great that it would far surpass and sustain in itself the world's pitiful feebleness he alone would henceforth be the measure and thus also the meaning of all impotence he wanted to sink so low that in the future all falling would be a falling into him hmm. and every streamlet of bitterness and despair would henceforth run down into his lowermost abyss and this the line that just has stayed with me now for 40 over 40 years is all falling would be a falling into him yes that's that 
that could be the motto of the disciple. Um, That's the meaning of grace. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, you, 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 you can't be so bad that God doesn't love you. You can't be so awful that God, does, God doesn't care. You can't be you know, so far gone that you can't be redeemed. Right. Yeah. Brought, I just, but that, the power of that idea, because I think a lot of people have the experience of just falling down, feeling like they've just fallen flat on their face. Yeah. or fallen in the eyes of others, or fallen in their own expectation. And, you know, but every time you fall, his arms will catch you. It, and this this is something that has to be repeated time and time again, because uh, it's very easy to turn the faith into mere moralism, a matter of doing the right thing um, instead of being the right man. And... Uh, it's very sometimes very difficult. People say things like, "I don't know how anybody could do that." Well, um, I I I kind of do know how people can do some of these things because I know myself, and I know that um, there are times you can fall uh, so far down that you have to be persuaded that even God uh, can be there to lift you up. Well, you know, to think of the Christian faith, Christian life, as purely a moral matter uh, gets you off to a very bad it's start. Very bad start. <laughs> yes, because we're all, you know, products of original sin, and right. and sin sin never leaves our lives, and our moral failings are never overcome. They're forgiven, and perhaps we grow. You know, if you know God is good and we are faithful, but. Uh, to make it a moral matter is to kind of make it a kind of form of torture, don't you think? Well, of course, because you can never measure up. Uh, uh, Jesus carries the world, but he doesn't carry it the same way Atlas tried to carry it. <laughs> um, and I think that that's the Christian who's uh, fallen uh, in following Christ, falls into him. Uh, and you, his, you notice when you come out of uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral, uh in New York City, what's on the other side of the street? It's Atlas at the Rockefeller Center, with the, you know, <laughs> holding the world up. That's I mean, great. it's completely con- yep. perfect contrast. Yeah, I, I never made that connection before, but that's great. Yeah, I, I, uh, you know, I do think that it's a shame. I can remember um, very early on in my uh, Catholic life doing a lot of personal evangelism and sharing faith in Christ and sharing the gospel with people. And I can remember a very common objection um, back in 1974 from people was, look, I'm not ready. Uh, I'm not ready to uh, behave that way. I I, I need to get myself together before I can uh, come to uh, church or, or to give my life to Christ. Big mistake. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. The church isn't saying throw out the baby with the bathwater. Throw out all the media. Don't use the media. What the Pope is saying that make sure that what you are doing is enabling yourself and others to encounter Christ more deeply. And you can't do that unless you reach out. You have to reach out to God first. You have to encounter him in the Eucharist, in that personal relationship. And then you pray, you reflect, and then you go. In my book, Beyond Sunday, Becoming a 24-7 Catholic, I talk about the three M's of faith meeting, mercy, and mission. You meet and encounter Christ. You enter into a personal relationship with him. 
He gives you mercy. And then what do you do? You just sit there and say, oh, thanks, Jesus. See you later. No, you go out on mission exactly as the woman at the well did. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Man failed the first test of freedom. He refused God's plan of love and chose freely to sin and made himself a slave to sin. That first sin gave mankind the gene or inclination to sin, which has given birth to numerous other sins. The Catholic Catechism reminds us that the exercise of freedom does not imply a right to say or do everything. Man is not totally self-sufficient, and his final goal is not his own self-interest and the enjoyment of earthly goals. When man violates the moral law, he becomes his own prisoner, disrupting neighborly fellowships while rebelling against divine truth. For freedom, Galatians tells us, Christ has set us free. He redeemed us from sin, which held man in bondage. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Advent is here, and it's a new church year. What is your favorite liturgical season? That's our question in this week's Pull of the Week. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to the Pull of the Week to let us know. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Deal Hudson, is host of Church and Culture, which is heard on Saturdays and Sundays on Ave Maria Radio. And we're taking a look at a marvelous book that he put together this year. Uh, it is called 365 Days of Catholic Wisdom, A Treasury of Truth, Beauty, and Goodness. And we've been looking at the array of contributors uh, to this volume. I'm, I'm looking here, Deal, at day 292, 
which is uh, again followed by day 293. Day 292, you've got Monsignor Ronald Knox talking about the Concordat uh, the Vatican made with uh, Hitler. And next to it, right across the, the seam, day 293, you've got the Theodore Hecker, I guess is the name. Uh, yes. I'm unfamiliar with him. But uh, there you have how faith laughs. And he's got uh, comments about the humorous rejoinders of Thomas More at the moment when his faith yes. looked into heaven. Yeah. Now, tell me, uh, I, by the way, this book by uh, Knox, Nazi Nazarene, is new to me. Um, tell me a little bit, uh, go ahead and read a little bit from it. Well, first of all, I'll say that Hecker uh, was a Catholic uh, professor of a uh, great uh, scholar of Homer and of Virgil. Uh, he wrote a very important book about Virgil. And he, however, had to, was stuck in uh, Berlin during the entire war. And because oh. he was so Catholic, uh, he sort of, and I think his wife was, uh, was his wife was with him and then shared the fear. But he uh, wrote a wonderful journal of uh, his experience during the war, and he uh, entitled it uh, "Journal of the Night." But this is uh, this is a side of Hecker that shows his deep his deep learning and insight into literature and in, into history. In the case of Saint Thomas More, so he writes this. He writes, "Humor is a finite spiritual sphere in which faith." is the infinite. Hmm. That may be seen from the nature of despair and its dialectic. A man deeply in despair, a man that is, who has not got faith or has lost it, can perfectly well have a high degree of humor, even to the point of genius. Shakespeare is full of examples. The humorous rejoinders of a man in despair are flung back, as it were, from the walls of the infinite spiritual sphere which to him are impenetrable, and they have a particular, unmistakable, and sinister ring. However, the humorous rejoinders of Thomas More at the moment when his faith looked into heaven strike a very different note. The tone is of the world like a, the tone of all humor, but it is not the tone of a solitary lost man as in the case of the man in despair, he strikes a chord in which the sounds of heavenly harmony of the seen and the unseen world. At times, the believer may see himself in this world bereft of every finite possibility. He may be deprived of humor altogether, even the humor of despair. And yet, with the eye of faith, he will see the quintessence of every possibility and what it is for man, the impossible possibility, God himself. Hmm. Wow. And, of course, you know, I'm thinking of uh, a lot of characters in Shakespeare, like, for example, in As You Like It, uh, the speech, All the World's a Stage. Mm -hmm. It's funny, but it's despairing. And it's meant to uh, contrast with, you know, the young lovers, Orlando and Rosalind. But uh, here, he, he again hits the perfect, sort of the perfect contrast between Shakespeare 
and Thomas More and how his his humor uh, doesn't carry a note of despair, but uh, carries the note of hope. Yeah, yeah. I want to uh, read to you this wonderful essay by Gertrude uh, Stein. Yeah, called "The Mystery of Christmas." She wrote in 1931. She's now, of course, Saint Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. But Edith Stein was a great philosopher in her own right. She studied with Edmund Husserl. She was his assistant yeah. at that time when Husserl was one of the you know, two or three leading philosophers in right. Europe. But she writes this in 1931. Christ came to win back lost mankind for the Father. Whoever loves with his love will want people for God and not for himself. Of course, that is the surest way to possess them forever. For wherever we have entrusted a person to God, then we are one with him in God. Whereas the craving to overpower sooner or later always leads to loss. It is true of the other soul as for one's own and for every external possession. Whoever is evidently out to win and to possess loses. Mm -hmm. Whoever hands over to God wins. Yeah. Yeah, this is, again, part of the paradox that Jesus uh, embodies, that the first shall be last, the last first. He who has uh, will uh, be emptied. He who has not will be filled. Uh, in, In this case, it's he who seeks to possess the other ends up losing uh, the other as a source of love, because love cannot be um, expressed uh, as possession of the other. Oh, as purely eros, the desire yeah. to possess that, the that's other. Right. That's right. We talked about with my that with my last book out. Yeah. Well, that that um, <clears throat> uh, that book, uh, how to um, trying to think, how to think, um, how to keep from losing, to keep your, from mind. losing your mind. Yeah. I can see you've already lost your... Yeah, I have. So, especially this year, this has been a, a great year. Which we've done well, but it's been, it's been, it has been full of changes and unexpected um, challenges. You, you, uh, you have in this uh, book, you introduce people, for instance, Gerald Van, uh, the Dominican. Boy, he was good. Yeah. What a great writer. And um, he's somebody I I don't see mentioned very often. But day 154, you have Gerald Van talking about wisdom as contrasted with mere facts. And uh, this is a distinction, which I think it's... Why don't you read that? I will. It is useful for man to have much information about matters of fact, but that is not wisdom. It is useful to have scientific knowledge, to know the immediate what and why of things, but that is not wisdom either. It is better to have philosophy, which is the knowledge of things, not in their immediate, but in their ultimate causes. That is wisdom, though it is not the highest form of wisdom. It is wisdom because it does reduce the manifold of life to the one and therefore make things intelligible as a unity. But you need to make the dry bones live, the vision, the intuition or awareness of things in their concreteness, their goodness and beauty, as well as their truth. And above all, you need some degree, at least, of direct knowledge of the nature of the one. 
And when you've had that vision in its plenitude, the plenitude which, knowing something of God in himself, sees all things in him, and him in all things. He's offering the mystic vision there, isn't he? Yeah, if you see a a book by Gerald Van O.P., a paperback usually uh, published by Image, uh, grab it. Yeah, because uh, this this book, The Great Pity, is very powerful, beautifully written, and uh, it it's a keeper. Yeah, and uh, another keeper, of course, is our good friend Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know there there are some. This was this quote was like the Balthazar one I read earlier that just completely stopped me. Uh, And I read this again uh, before becoming Catholic, and it was, again, one more step, you know, toward the church. This is on day 51, and it's from the introduction of a book he read, she wrote called Memoir of Marianne. The memoir is actually by the the Dominican Hawthorne Sisters of Atlanta. Hmm who were friends of Flannery O'Connor because she was only an hour away in Milledgeville. And by the way, that's where I was uh, confirmed, brought into the church. Where? At that same Dominican Sisters, of Hawthorne Sisters in Atlanta. Oh, really? The same place. And they, they back in the 1960-61, they wrote this book about this remarkable young lady, Mary Ann, who they had, uh, they took in, she was, Parents brought her in. She was very deformed, and it was it was said by the doctors she would only live nine months. Well, she lived like eleven or twelve years mm-hmm. because of she was loved so much. And Flannery is is commenting on you know how a lot of people would have just given up on on this lump of flesh so you know so deformed and so unlikely to live, you know because. You know, the argument would be, uh, we don't want her to suffer. You know, we don't want her to live that way. And she writes, In this popular pity, we mark our gain in sensibility and our loss in vision. If other ages felt less, they saw more, even though they saw with the blind, prophetical, unsentimental eye of acceptance, which is to say, faith. In the absence of this faith now, we govern by tenderness. It is a tenderness which, long since cut off from the person of Christ, is wrapped in theory. When tenderness is detached from the source of tenderness, its logical outcome is terror. It ends in forced labor camps and in the fumes of the gas chamber. Mm. Wow. Had you read that before? Uh, no, I've not. I not. I mean, that is yeah, I didn't, exactly right. Yeah, I did not know the story of Marianne either, so it's something I'll have to get familiar with. Um, th- but the but the concept there of how this uh, the virtual signaling uh, kind of effort to say, well, we don't want people to suffer, so therefore we're not going to let them come into existence or we're going to snuff their life out, you know, know, quickly, uh, that we don't want anybody to, you know, to die uh, too, too painfully. 
And that's where it leaves. Neil, hold it there. We'll come back in just a moment. Uh, uh, let's uh, let's read something from uh, Bishop Fulton Sheen when we come back, okay? There's plenty of that. My guest is Deal Hudson. We're looking at this wonderful collection called 365 Days of Catholic Wisdom, a Treasury of Truth, Beauty, and Goodness. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. I come from the other side of the tracks, see? My uncle used to have slot machines. Put one nickel in and it's emptied. And I brought him home in a bag, and my mother looked at me. Where did you get all that money? I said, I won him. You didn't win him. He fixed the machine. I didn't care if he fixed the machine or not, you know? EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. 60 Seconds with Father Mitch Pacwa. Buddhism itself has a lot of different forms. There's no one type of Buddhism. When you get to Buddha himself, he was a complete agnostic and uh, supposed to have been a very wealthy prince who had everything but found that this was all hollow and empty, especially in the face of death. What he came up with as a basic principle is that the source of all suffering in life is having desires. So you need to free yourself of all desires, and then you won't suffer in this life anymore. This would be very different from Christianity, where we don't want to give up our desire for God. First, we do believe that there is one God. Second, we do believe that it's three persons in one God. And thirdly, that the goal of life is not emptiness, but is union with God. And through Jesus Christ, that's the way of salvation. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle. In the third rule of the Discernment of Spirits, the second description St. Ignatius of Loyola provides explaining spiritual consolation gives us insight into how God helps souls achieve greater interior freedom. Speaking of a soul who has experienced an inflaming of the love of God within their hearts, he writes, Consequently, when it can love no created thing on the face of the earth in itself, but only in the Creator of them all. This consequence of the inflaming of the love of God through the gift of spiritual consolation 
brings about a perfection of love within the human heart. Father Timothy Gallagher writes, This enkindling of love in God within us causes our love for all other persons and things to harmonize with that central love. What relationships and areas in your life need grace to harmonize with the love of God? For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. Cresta with me, Deal Hudson. He is the author of 365 Days, or the editor of 365 Days of Catholic Wisdom, a treasury of truth, beauty, and goodness. And we're getting a taste of some of the selections uh, in this work. And, uh, you know, we didn't talk about uh, how beautifully bound it is. Uh, Tan really did a great job here. Um, this is a hardback uh, with the, got a, kind of looks like a Bible. It's got a a ribbon through it that you can do. It's really a beautiful book. And uh, did you talk to them about that, or did they choose that on the? Oh home? yes, yeah, and good. they just completely blew me away with how beautifully they presented the book. They didn't tell me about the ribbon, and of course, when I got the ribbon, I said to my wife, "I said I've arrived as an author. I have a ribbon." <laughs> <laughs> but I picked out something for you to read. Yeah, go from ahead, Bishop Fulton Sheen. It's uh, day two eighty one. Okay. And I want you to start reading in the middle of the page where it says religion is indeed a life, because sure. it, it goes to something we discussed uh, at the beginning of our conversation today. Sure. This is Bishop Fulton Sheen, and uh, religion is indeed a life, but it grows out of truth, not away from it. It has been said it makes no difference what you believe. It all depends on how you act. This is psychological nonsense, for a man acts out of his beliefs. Our Lord placed truth or belief in him first. Then, then came sanctification and good deeds. But here truth was not a vague ideal, but a person. Truth was now lovable, because only a person is lovable. Sanctity becomes the response the heart makes to divine truth in its unlimited mercy to humanity. Then our Lord added, that as he had been sent on his father's business, so they, sanctified by the spirit of holiness, were to go through the earth as his ambassadors. And that's taken from his work, Life of Christ, which is, to this day, remains an outstanding look at the life of Jesus. You know, Al, I, as I wrote this book, I sometimes had hundreds of books stacked on the floor in front of me as I was writing. And... Uh, I kept going back to Fulton Sheen because he was so darn good. He's quotable. He, uh, and, you, you know, you take this this sentence, truth was now lovable because only a person is lovable. Yep, yep. I mean, there is so uh, it's such a rich uh, remark, and, you know, we could talk about that for the rest, you know, the rest of the hour. Uh, but Sheen is just such a, he may, he was a Thomistic philosopher in his training, but he had none of the uh, abstractness and cold, sort of coldness right. of a lot of Thomist uh, philosophers and, and speakers. Uh, he, know, he knew how to take the horse into the barn. Yeah, 
Yeah, get the hay down where the horses can eat. Too. Well, that's the music you introduced <laughs> us with, with the country music, and the last uh, part you introduced us with uh, romantic flute music. Uh-huh. So I guess you're trying to go for you know everybody's musical taste, we're, we're right? Cath- we're Catholic here, yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> even in our musical taste, you know, here's a uh, Belloc, of course, makes his appearance uh, throughout the book. I mean, like G.K. Chesterton, mm-hmm. uh, like we just said, Frank uh, Fulton Sheen, yeah. they're just so darn quotable. Yep. yep. And you have to hold yourself back, or you, your whole book could end up being Belloc, Chesterton, and, you know, Sheen, and a few others. It's also difficult to cut them off, <laughs> because they, they one sentence rolls into the other so nicely, you always feel like you're maybe doing damage to them by limiting the quote. So, yes, I know the I know. The but feeling. I want to surprise our, your listeners, our listeners, with a, I put a poem in by yeah. Belloc called Courtesy, and what... What he's referring to is the medieval notion of courtesia, which was a met, you know a medieval Christian virtue that the knights had to pledge them to, and it had to do with courtly love, with uh, treating ladies uh, the way uh, ladies should be treated, and especially uh, the mother of God. Uh, Belloc wrote, what, what day is it? I, I want to follow you. This on is this. Oh, day 351. Okay, very good. Uh, of courtesy, it is much less than courage of heart or holiness. Yet in my walks, it seems to me that the grace of God is in courtesy. On monks, I did in Storrington fall. They took me straight into their hall. I saw three pictures on a wall, and courtesy was in them all. The first annunciation, the second visitation, the third, the consolation. Of God, that was Our Lady's Son. The first was of Saint Gabriel, on wings of flame from heaven he fell. And he, and as he went upon one knee, he shone with heavenly courtesy. Our Lady out of Nazareth rode. It was her month of heavy load. Yet was her faith both great and kind, for courtesy was in her mind. Mm. The third, it was Our Little Lord whom all the kings and arms adored. He was so small, you could not see his large intent of courtesy. Our Lord, that is our lady's son, go bless you people one by one. My rhyme is written. My work is done. (laughs) You feel like, you know, you almost feel like Belloc is offering you friendship. Right. Personal personal friendship through a, a, a poem that's both devotional but also... There's a little smile, a wry smile at the end, right? Yeah. I, I, and I, I, I noticed, too, here that this is, you take, took this from a, a volume edited by uh, Joyce Kilmer, Dreams and Images, an anthology of Catholic poetry. Well, that's a, still a great uh, uh, anthology of Catholic poetry. It, it stands the test of time. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. And I have, uh, I have uh, I'm not going to uh, read it to you, but uh, I have, because of Dana Joya's uh, suggestion, I have a Catholic poet who was a World War I survivor, James Allen Wyeth, and uh, he was uh, just as good a poet as the famous 
uh, ones that we know about, Siegfried Sassoon and, mm-hmm. and others. And so it was wonderful that in the process of getting recommendations, I discovered new and, and extremely important uh, voices that, that uh, I don't think many people know about. I mean, who's heard of John Allen Wyeth? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's an Andrew Wyeth, right? Yes. Yeah. A painter. A painter, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't know James Allen Wyeth. Well, if you look on day uh, 158, you will see uh, he wrote, which I'm going to let you read it. Uh, it's called The Village Road, and it's, again, an experience of his from World War One, as he fought in the trenches. Okay. Too dark and late for any bugle call. A wakeful horse along the picket line stamps obstinately in the squeaky loom. No voice in either orchard with its din array of tents. Nearby a crooked, excuse me, nearby a cracked old wall gives, as I pass, a tiny blinking sign. Bob must be still at work or writing home. I break in just to say good night to him, then halfway to my billet, being all alone, I bear my head before the shrine that hallows all this stretch of road for me. The skyline flares and thunders where a foam of rockets drifts along the low charred rim, rim of hills that close in that infernal sea. Very vivid. Uh, The skyline flares and thunders where a foam of rockets drifts along the low charred rim of hills that close in that infernal sea. So he's a he's a World War One poet, huh? Yeah, and uh, Dana Joya uh, has edited a volume of his poems from which this is taken, uh, entitled uh, "This Man's Army: A War in Fifty Odds uh, Sonnets." Mm. And uh, you know, this was one that I told John Morehouse I wasn't cutting. I <laughs> 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 wasn't going to cut John Allen Wyeth. He was just too good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, another person that writes just magnificently is Carol Hauslander. Oh, my wife discovered Carol Hauslander years ago. Look at ago. day 145. Yeah. Yeah, Sally. This is from her book on guilt. Um, oh, that's actually uh, fairly difficult to get these days, I think. Um, she did a lot of lay counseling in her day. Um, she was a woman of extraordinary empathy and compassion. So do we have see. time for me to read this? Yep. Uh, yes, we do. Go ahead. Okay. Because I want people to feel her, you know, her gift for expression. Mm-hmm. Sanctity is a genius for love. That is why the saint never complains of not being fulfilled. <laughs> Sounds like Father Groeschel. Yes. It doesn't? Yes, it does. No matter what the circumstances of his life are, the saint loves to his fullest human capacity, not only supernaturally, though this is what matters, but naturally, too, and it is on the degree of his capacity for objective love and on nothing else, that the fullness of any man's life depends. It is not depend upon circumstances or chance, on whether he is gifted or not, on whether he has a happy or melancholy temperament, or whether he is rich or poor, married or single, on whether he has a magnificent vocation or a humdrum one 
on whether he travels the world over or is restricted to the same few streets for the whole of his life, on whether he is good-looking or plain, on whether he is healthy or unhealthy. It depends on one thing and one thing only, whether he has or has not got the capacity to love. Yeah. Was that all one sentence? I think most of it was one sentence. Just beautifully written. And uh, Carol Hauslander is another one like uh, Fulton Sheen and Chesterton and Mm -hmm. Belloc and Mm -hmm. Gerald Van. Uh, You want to go back and read it again because not only is it profound, it's just beautiful. Yeah. It carries carries you along. And... um, she, and she points out in this book, the, the, you might say the one thing necessary, which is the capacity to love, to love like Christ, to become conformed to Christ, which is also seeking first the kingdom. Uh, all of these come together in the, uh, the capacity to love, which becomes, as I've gotten older, becomes more and more significant. When you're younger, you think love's, how hard can it be to love? The older you get, I think the more uh, challenging it is because you want it to, you want to stretch your capacity. Well, because to love. because you know what love is, and you realize you've fallen short. Yes, that in is the right. past, but in the past you didn't know what it was, yeah. so you couldn't measure yourself. Right. No, that's true. Um, but Carol Hauslander is a a, a great uh, British writer who. Uh, is thankfully many of her books are back in print. They were not in print for a long time, and uh, I don't know if Guilt has made it back in print. There's the old edition for Sheed and Ward. Deal. Thanks for being with me. I'm delighted. Neil Hudson, 365 Days of Catholic Wisdom. It's a treasury of truth, beauty, and goodness. Beautiful. Dr. Ray Garendi. Most experts don't think like you do. Go to the computer. Type in child, self-esteem, search. Last time I looked, 31 million options. The experts believe self-esteem is the preeminent moral virtue. Type in child, humility, search. Crickets. Why? When was the last time you heard a secular expert talk about humility? But that's at the very core of the virtues we want to teach our children. Always remember one thing. When an expert tells you how to raise your child, you have to ask a question. Is this expert of the same worldview that I am? Does he or she value the same virtues I want to impart to my children? Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. Here's the new challenge. At least one hour a week in front of the Blessed Sacrament with the goal of an hour a day in front of the Blessed Sacrament. I had a guy come up to me and he says, Father, you know, I'm doing a lot of things. I'm, I'm in a men's fellowship. I pray with my wife every day. I go to mass every Sunday and, and usually a couple times during the week. I read scripture. He goes, I want more. I said, do you pray in front of the Blessed Sacrament? He said, outside of mass, no. I said, I think that's the more. See, all these saints, these are the ones who surround us. These are the ones who ran before us. These are the ones who fought well, who kept the faith. They would tell you, as would every single saint in heaven right now, you cannot run this race if you don't spend time with the Master. Whatever else we're doing, it's second, third, and fourth. First things need to be first. The first thing is to be with the Master. 
and the master is Jesus. Thanks for being with us over the last two hours. If you go to AveMariaRadio.net, you can follow up on all of those conversations. We'll, of course, have Deal's book available for you, 365 Days of Catholic Wisdom, as well as another book he's written that's um, kind of a tie into this, which is How to Keep, your lo- how to keep from Losing Your Mind, uh, Educating Yourself Classically to Resist Cultural Indoctrination. And we'll be talking more, uh, hopefully tomorrow or maybe next week, about some different uh, ways that this cultural indoctrination continues to just rage out of control. Uh, also wanted to give a uh, quick heads up for a program we'll be doing next week. We'll do our, our annual uh, Direct to My Desk, asking you to share your recommendations for books you've read either this year, maybe last year, or maybe you read it 20 years ago and you still love it. Well, we like to do this around Christmas time for those of you who are looking for uh, gift ideas. And we're doing it a little earlier this year to uh, give people some time to get their hands on those books. So that'll be next Wednesday, a week from today, on Crest in the Afternoon. Just wanted to give you a, a chance to start thinking about what books you would like to recommend. And we'll be uh, reminding you more about that as well in the coming days. As we go off the air, Catholic Answers Live is ready to take your calls. And we'll be back tomorrow with more on Cresta in the Afternoon. Peggy Stanton joining us for our uh, weekly discussion on the Gospel. Later on on Friday, we'll have some special coverage for the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. Until then, have a great evening and God bless. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.